All right. Good afternoon, everyone. It's always awesome to be here amongst the brethren and to worship our uh, glorious King and Savior. Um, we will be reading from Isaiah this morning. We'll continue on. Um, quite an eventful time that we live in. A lot of things going on. Craziness. And um, just all kinds of things. Um, so with that, let's uh, let's start with prayer. We just went from prayer, we, we went to prayer. And uh, one of the things before we get into that, though, is is uh, for those that might be listening online, there's I just want to remind you, you can you if you're so inclined to do so, if God so moves, uh, that you would, um, if you're uh, led to give, that you you can do that on our website. Um, I guess you can do it through our Spotify spot and uh, some other places. So um, if you're willing to do that, that would be awesome. We would always greatly appreciate that. Um, also, uh, for those of you who are online that uh, um, that God would bless you and uh, uh, use this, uh, use our little ministry here to uh, to be able to to reach out to you and to be able to help better uh, your understanding of who God is. Um, so we're in a place here in Isaiah, and it's uh, smack dab in the middle of some more woes that we went through a few chapters ago, and. Um, those words, those woes are oys. Oi! Oi to you! Oi to those! And uh, the focus is going to be, the, the title of the message is Sowing and Reaping. <clears throat> I really couldn't think of another better title, uh, and I grappled with that. But that's the principle that's being worked out here. And that's one of the things that we have to understand is, as believers. Um there is a recompense, there is a price. What you sow, you indeed reap. And as the Bible says, if you sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. Right? And uh, and so the, the people of this time, of Isaiah's time, have reaped the whirlwind. And in, uh, in, in so many ways, um, all those things are being worked out all, all continually. We're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at God as the judge, and we're going to look at the uh, the indictments and the things that He continues to to cry out. Remember how we left off last week with those um, very somber words of uh, of God and in through uh, the prophet Isaiah. In spite of all this, His anger does not turn away, and His hand is still stretched out. Um, somber, powerful words to really grasp hold of our minds and hearts that when God's anger is being uh, uh, poured out that uh, in this case that uh, there was going to be more of that anger being poured out his hand was still stretched out here in uh, um, at the end of Isaiah chapter 9 in judgment he was still going to be doing this to the people he had not relented of his anger he had not relented of his judgment um, and he doesn't do so. And that's one of the dangers that we're going to find as we, one of the things I want you to think about. Because when God does pour out his wrath, when you think about uh, um, judgment, uh, there are those people within the church who, who believe that um, they, don't, they just really have a hard time believing that it's an eternal judgment, an eternal punishment. And so they really struggle with that. But it's all up to God, and, and I frankly believe that it's, it sounds like it's eternal, that it's never ending, it, it's, it never ceases. Because He is an eternal God, and His judgments are, are, are good, and they're, they're right, um, but He is eternal, and there's an eternal price to be paid. But here, there's, this time frame is, is in a historical time frame, and it was uh, something, if you uh, can remember the, the historicity of it, um, this is a time where God, uh, the, the people of, of uh, Israel, the Israelites, um, they had broken into two camps. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And they had uh, made alliances with other kings, and, and uh, they had made alliances, more importantly, and more um, consequential is the fact that they made alliances with other gods, false gods. And Paul helps us to understand and 
And even in some other places where God himself says, you're worshiping demons when you do that. And they had turned from God. And uh, God is calling them out on them. And uh, so I want to, we're going to try to get through 1 through 19. Um, and so let's uh, begin with uh, um, reading the first uh, four verses. Then we'll go into a time of prayer. Then we'll continue to read this. And then we'll help break it down a little bit. So in verse 1, chapter 10 of Isaiah, God's continuing speaking through Isaiah, and he says, Woe to those who enact evil statutes, and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice, and rob the poor of my people of their rights, in order that widows may be their spoil, and that they may plunder the orphans. Now. What will you do in the day of punishment and in the day of devastation, which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all of this, his anger does not turn away. And his hand is still stretched out. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the holy God of, of all the universe. You alone are the one who made all things. You are creator. And you made all things. And all things are because you made them. And we thank you that we can acknowledge that and know you in such a way that you're the almighty. The one who simply spoke and it was. So far as we can understand and see. We thank you, Lord, that uh, in all these things, you are sovereign. You are the God of all uh, creation. You are the God who has defend, uh, defined all things. And you are the one who has um, decreed your created order. Father, we're in a time right now where all of that is being challenged, where it's being redefined, where people amongst us, People in places of power and influence would re redefine everything in accordance with their understanding, with their immorality, with their views. They've abandoned what you have already established. Father, I pray that you would help us in this time, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, that you would be with us, and that we would uh, not flee from those things, that we would stand strong in those things, that we would use the language that you have given us that we find spoken in your word, and that we would abandon the uh, language of the world and the spirit of the age, and that we would stand against them. Uh, we're here in peaceful protest. Um, Father, I just thank you that you are the one who is in charge and uh, who is uh, sovereign over all these things. Have your way over us, Lord. Open up our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to uh, to these words, to these things that are here, and help us to grasp them and understand, and and just to glorify you all the more, and to worship you and adore you, for you are good, and we thank you that you are indeed good in all that you do, in all that you say, and in all that you enact. We thank you because of who you are. I pray that you would help us to appreciate more, just to be in your presence, just to be with you because of who you are. What a great an amazing and awesome privilege that that is. Father, thank you. We praise you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, may you be glorified. Amen. Amen. So he begins with the woes. Woe to you, those who are in power, those who are in places of influence. Woe to those. It's one of the things that God hates the most is an unjust judge. He hates pride and arrogance. Just this last week, um, uh, with uh, um, having conversations with people, you and you engage with people in certain ways, and and one of the things that I uh, am learning more and more is when you use biblical language that people who are not saved really hate it. They yeah, they despise it. They don't like it. it rubs them the wrong way because they're reminded that there is a God who is holy, who is righteous, who is just who is the judge of all the earth. Um, 
He's the one who hates unjust judges who pass judgments unrighteously and unjustly and do it in an unjust, uh, injustice way. Um, here is in our text, we move where our, we have more woes that God has pronounced in light of what the people should have been doing as opposed to what they are doing in the time of Isaiah. The corruption, it was ubiquitous. The fancy word for it was all over the place. Everywhere you look, there was corruption. The judges were corrupt. The leaders were corrupt. Priests were corrupt. People were corrupt. Everywhere you look, corruption was all about. It had infected everything. Laws, the justice systems, the judges, the worship, everything. It had infected the faith of the people. In fact, they had pretty much abandoned the faith of their fathers. The one that God had promised them. Um, the private lives of the people, everything. Much like today, it's nearly impossible to escape the effects of the corruption. It just pours and just streams into everything, everywhere you look. We see it in media. We see it in our schools. We see it in the justice system. We see it in the political system. No matter where you look, we see it in Hollywood. We see it in our entertainment. No matter where you look, you see this corruption. And the biggest part of the corruption is, the, is what I was talking about earlier, is the redefinition. Uh, redefinition of, of all things, redefining what God has already called into order. And God says, woe to those who do that. Woe to those. Um, he warns people. He continually warns. He continually cries out. Today, He cries out through the church. We're supposed to be that moral voice to the mayors and to the uh, legislators and to the councils and to all these things. We're to be that moral voice of God. And so he says, woe to those who enact evil statutes and those who constantly record unjust uh, judgments so as to deprive the needy of justice and to rob the poor of my people of their rights. And that's ultimately what it does, doesn't it? Corruption. It robs you of your rights. And it's sad to see that today in our, our time that there's so many people who are so eager to have some semblance of safety and, and peace and health that they're willing to give up their rights in order to have that. And uh, you're looked upon as uh, some kind of a um, death cult. I know that uh, group up in Idaho, that uh, in Moscow, that uh, they had some people that were calling them a death cult because for the most part they were meeting and they were meeting outside, singing outside the city hall. I talked about this last week where there was three people arrested. And some people responded, this is a death cult because they were out in the air, the open air, breathing like normal people. You see, we've been, we've been uh, things have been so corrupted that they infect and affect everything, even the language, even the way that you think. How many of you out there are thinking there is a new normal? Well, there isn't. Unless you make it so. You give up your right to be normal, to live normal. Do not acquiesce your rights. Do not give in to those things. And he says, so as to deprive the needy of justice and to rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that widows may be uh, their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Remember last in the last chapter how that God had uh, gotten to a place with them. And, and it's one of the most important things we see throughout Scripture where God is concerned about the widows and the orphans. And He'd gotten to a place uh, with these people where He said, I'm, those of you who are taken captives, I'm not going to have any compassion on your widows or on your orphans. I won't have any compassion on them anymore. I'm done with you. And it was only for a moment, but it's still sad when you think about the impact of what he's saying. This is one of the most important things. There's so many things written in the law that were meant to protect and to provide for the destitute. Over and over and over again in the law, he was making sure that they were taken care of. And here they had abandoned him such and uh, had become 
almost entirely a godless people. And we'll see that it's God is the one who recognizes that. Um, verse 3 says, Now, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation um, which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captive or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is stretched, still stretched out. This is, uh, um, this is one of those things where when uh, you have these unjust judges that continually come up with these judgments, I know one of the most unjust and unjust things and unconstitutional decisions that were made by the Supreme Court in our case was the one that was done in 1973. How there's supposedly a right to murder children in the womb in the Constitution somewhere. And they make up language in order to come to their conclusion. And the corruption just continues. Um, you know, just uh, this last, uh, uh, what was it, the last week of the week prior, um, RGB, Ruth Bad Girl Bent Ginsburg, she passed away. And uh, I was mentioning earlier that I was having a conversation with, with, with someone who hates the language of, of God that we find in Scripture. And I posted and I said, look, you know, they're, they're making a hero out of this, this woman. And when you think about it, she's one of these. She's one of those who was in a place of power and position and should have had just judgments, but she didn't. How many millions of babies are on her hand that she has to answer and account for? There's a lot. Well, she doesn't go back to 73, but she goes back quite a ways. So she's got a lot on her hand. And the reason why I, I pointed that out in a, a Facebook post was simply because, look, they're making a, a martyr out of this person. They're making a, an idol. And this is really uh, this sweet little grandma that you see that people think of first. But no, she's this evil. She's the face of evil. She's the face of wickedness. And the people just celebrate her. And when you say anything against her, oh, people are just get all get all upset and mad. And like I said, I was having a conversation. They they quickly shifted from all the things in the ju judge, the unjust things that she's done and she's guilty of. And I just simply said, look, this judge is now standing before the judge of all the earth. And she stands alone and she has to answer to God for all of her ideology. Her godlessness, her evil and her wicked just judgments. All of these things are the things that she's going to have to answer for. She has no room to run anywhere. And she can't fool the God of the universe. He will not be mocked. She won't be able to insist on all these other things. And uh, so a friend of mine, you know, of all the things, you know, he went to the homosexual marriage thing and started hitting me there and asked me, well, what, what do you have? What, why do you have such a problem with that? And I'm like, well, because God has a problem with it. He's the one who defines what marriage is. He defined it a long time ago. Jesus was the same. He defined it in Matthew chapter 19. And it was simple. It's like, well, the, I, uh, well, is marriage ruined and so on and so forth just because these people? I said, well, that... What you call a marriage, in that sense, is not a marriage at all. I don't even recognize it and refuse to. Said, so, but the because uh, they they asked, well, do you still perform marriages and so on and so forth? And I said, well, yes, but I do so in accordance with what this says, right? This is this is how we're to see it. And when we use biblical language, it's like I do these things because this is what this says. And other people challenge me on other points of the. Of the, of the law and so on and so forth. And I just said, this is what it says. Well, do you preach this too? And I said, yes, absolutely I do. Chapter by chapter. Um, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word, by word for word. That's the way that we're to do it. If there's things in there that we don't like it, tough. You've got to deal with it. God is the one who says it. That's it. That's what we've got to come down to. But he says, woe to you who do these things. He's given people a warning. 
And you have these unjust judges, these, these, these people in political power, wherever, of influence, that will be held accountable. And some will say, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's irrelevant. You can not believe that all you want. You're lying to you, to me, and to yourself. You believe it. You believe that there's a God. You know that there is. You just deny the fact. You suppress that truth in unrighteousness. That's where these people had gotten. They'd gotten to the place where um, there was no longer any wisdom. There was no longer um, any... It was just sinful. Everywhere you looked, there was wickedness and evil. You know, in Proverbs, it tells us, in Proverbs 14, it tells us that... that uh, Righteousness exalts a nation. It says that wisdom rests in the heart. In, in uh, Proverbs 14, 33 through 35, these would be in your bulletin, these uh, passages. Wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding. But in the hearts of fools, it is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Um, the king's favor, listen, the king's favor... And we're talking about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The king's favor is towards a servant who acts wisely. But his anger, yes, anger, his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. And many a people have died and have acted shamefully. There's so many things that are going on. I mean, it's, it's hard to even fathom all the, the wickedness that's going on around us. And here it's not just talking about any king, it's talking about the king of kings for the most part. His favor is toward the servants who act wisely, but his anger is towards him who acts shamefully. God watches and sees. And it's not like God is this cosmic uh, God who is watching over everything, just waiting for us to mess up so that he could stomp on us. That's, that's not the point of it. But he does watch. And he records everything. Because everyone will stand before him one point or another. And praise God for the gospel because um, in the gospel we have a reprieve. We have forgiveness. And many people will reject that over and over and over again. God is just. He watches all things. He records all things. He's not this cosmic uh, homie the clown type guy waiting to whack you over the head with a sock filled with something to take you out. He's not. He is watching though. Make no mistake. And one day we will stand before Him to give an account and He'll have everything recorded. Right? He'll have everything recorded. Praise God that the Word tells us in the New Testament that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. We're free. Yeah. That our sins were placed there on the cross. It does say in, uh, as our, uh, our um, memory verse says, um, Galatians, and this is an easy one to, to commit to memory because it's, like I said before earlier on, it's Galatians 6, 7, and 8 that I'm going to read here. It's the principle of retribution is an important biblical teaching. What you reap, that also shall you, shall you, or what you sow, that also shall you reap. People reap what they sow, whether to destruction or to benefit. Um, in Galatians, Paul recognizes this and he says, do not be deceived. Because there's going to be much deception out there. There's a lot of deception out there. And it sounds so much like the truth. And so many people are taken in by it. Um, but he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And even now, there's people that think that they can get away with whatever they want. They don't understand. There's a time of recompense. There's a time to pay. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now listen, this is Paul speaking to Christians, to believers, not to non-believers. He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. So we have to be careful. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Eternal life. Hallelujah. We'll reap eternal life. That's good news. 
good news. The children of Israel are about to reap what they've sown. They deprive the needy of the justice and rob the poor, many people of their rights. Remember, part of the part of the things that they were doing were they would get people into situations where the widows, instead of taking care of them, the, the people would buy up the land and move the, the boundaries. Which God said in the law, do not do this. You're breaking the law. So that they will always have a portion. Their portion has been given to them. Do not take that. You're stealing from them. Sounds a lot like communism, doesn't it? We're going to take from, from you because you have more and give it to somebody else so that everybody's equal. Some are just more equal than others, right? He says, no, you rob the poor of my people, of their rights. You're not just robbing them of their goods. You're robbing them of their rights. Who's the one who's given the right? God. Even in our constitution, it was understood. Our founding fathers understood that our rights come from God Almighty, not from man. And we need to remember that in this country. That we're not a democracy. It may shock some of you. We're not. We're a representative republic. That's what we are. And our rights are recognized as being given by God. The liberties that we have are God-given. So God says, you're robbing my people, uh, my poor people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil. They're setting them up. And that they may be uh, may plunder the orphans. The poor, of course, are the for the most part, the orphans are the fatherless. We have right now a uh, just a whole problem with fatherlessness. And the statistics read for themselves. If you remember around Father's Day, how I wrote, uh, read all those statistics. And how important that the father is in the home. Um, that he's there. And that he is uh, being uh, the, the godly father that he's supposed to be. God says this in the Psalm 9, uh, 17 through 19. He says, the wicked will return to Sheol. Even all the nations who forget God. And that's where these people were at. They had forgotten God. He says, for the needy will not always be forgotten. Nor the hope of the afflicted. Perish forever. See, God is constantly has the poor and the destitute on his mind and in his heart. And we're to help provide for those who are in need. He says, arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. See, God is ultimately going to be the judge of all the earth. He's not just the judge of the people who are religious, who believe in him. He's the God of all the earth. And that's what people need to understand, that there is a judgment coming. There is a recompense that will arrive, and one day they will be faced with it. Um, he goes on to say that they, uh, that they may plunder the orphans. He says, now, what will you do in the day of punishment? He's asking the question, rhetorically, but also in reality. He says, when that day is coming, and it's coming, um, in the day, in the devastation which will come from afar, remember those names that God gave to Isaiah's son, Maharshalal Hashbaz. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. It's going to come from afar and it's going to come fast. Before you can even recognize it, it's going to be upon you and it's going to take you over. And remember, he was primarily speaking of the northern kingdoms at that moment. And he says, what are you going to do in that day? In the day of the devastation which will come from afar. He says, to whom will you flee for help? You're now turned to your false gods, to your demonic idols. Who are you going to turn to? Who are you going to pray to? Who are you going to depend on? And it simply says, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch. Now notice that. He says, all that's going to be left for you to do is to just to crouch. Try to hide. Amongst the captives. This is an assurance by God. You're going to be captives. You're going to be taken captive. There's no getting around it. And all you can do, the best you can do, because you've abandoned me, all you can do is crouch among them. That's it. 
or you'll fall among the slain. What does it mean? You're going to be dead. You're going to be dead. Those are your two choices. That's what you've been reduced to. You're either going to crouch amongst all the captives, and the crouching there is probably people tied up together in groups, and they're forced at times in groups to just crouch down. Or you're just going to be dead. That's, that's, that's what your future is going to be like. And then to add insult to injury, those words, those fateful words, those harsh, hard words, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. Even though you're crouching, reduced to that, even though you're reduced to just being slain, his anger does not turn away. And his hand is still stretched out. That's an angry God. It's not a vicious God. That's not a mean God. That's an angry God, rightfully so. And that's what people don't understand. When people don't understand the holiness of God and the, the, the righteousness that He um, is, that He embodies, that He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of adoration. He's worthy to be worshipped. But His hand is still stretched out. Then He says, Woe! Woe to who now? Woe to Assyria. Now remember, Assyria in the historical sense that Syria... And and excuse me, um, Ephraim were coming together, the northern kingdoms, and they wanted to form an alliance with Judah, with King Ahaz, and go after the Assyrians. And he said, "No, I'm not going to do that." Ahaz said, "No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that." And so now they've turned their anger towards Judah, and so God is going to deal with them with Assyria. And this enters into one of those areas where Assyria has been called into action by God. And remember from last week where we were reading where God is the one who drives them. He's the one who drives them on to do His judgment, His justice to His people. But that doesn't take away their responsibility. And that's one of the things that people don't understand. People who hate the idea of God, they say that. They say, well, if God if God makes everything and He's the one who's in in charge of all this stuff, and and uh, there's all this wrong and want and this awfulness and evil in the world, and isn't that his fault? And shouldn't why does he hold us accountable? Well, here's the thing that they don't understand: they don't understand that they're guilty. And when you're talking with somebody that has that point of view, remind them of that. You know, here's the one thing that you're not understanding: they're they're guilty. They're guilty before God. They're guilty of sin. They're sinners. They sin because they're sinners. They sin because they're sinners. It's not the other way around. It's not once you you're uh, you, you know you're uh, a sinner because it's it's because you that you're a sinner because you sin. It's you are a sinner from the word go. That's why we sin. And that's what people need to understand: is they're guilty before God. In all the things. They always seem to forget about that. They always seem to forget about the fact that. Hey they embrace all this immorality. All this redefined. What God has already called. In his created order. They're redefining everything. They're redoing. Remolding. Reshaping. In their image. Rather than in the image of God. And. Then they don't understand. That they're guilty. Of the same rebellion as Adam. Rebelling against God. Um, let's continue on so we can uh, try to get through more, more of this. Um, and the staff, he says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. So God is going to use them as the weapon, as the justice, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. So God is going to use them, undoubtedly. This is what his plan is. He says, I send it against a godless nation. Now, this is the God of Israel sending Assyria a idolatrous people, he's using them, and he's saying, I'm sending those Assyrians against a godless people. This is where God is saying, my people have become godless. I don't even recognize what it is that they are. They're godless. This is God saying this. It's heavy to think about. This is God saying, I'm sending them after a godless people because they have turned away from God. 
And he says, and commission it against the people in my, uh, of my fury. He's furious with them. And he's going to pour out his anger. And his, uh, his wrath is going to be um, consumed them. He says, to capture booty and to seize plunder. And to trample them down like mud in the streets. Then verse 7, the turn there. This is why woe to Assyria. He says, yet it does not in, uh, so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart. See, within, there's a pride building up. There's an arrogance building up. There's this thing that's within us that God hates. God hates more than anything, I think, is pride. Arrogance. He hates it with a passion. And so they're not intending to do so. Their hearts are turned wicked, and they have other thoughts other than what God has called them to do. He says, but rather, in verse 7, um, it is... It's purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. He's just called them after um, Ephraim, the northern kingdoms. And they've got more intention, right? For it says, and here's what it says in verse 8, Are not my princes all kings? They were pretty important stuff. Is not Kalno like Karkamesh and Hamath like Arpad? And Samaria, like Damascus, these are all places that Assyria had invaded, conquered. Not according to what God had called them to do, but according to their own pride and arrogance. And then he says in verse 10, As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, and this is again speaking through the God, revealing what the kings of Assyria were saying, the leaders there. He says, is... Um, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, now listen, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. That's how far the people had gotten. They were worshiping idols. Right? And they're, in their mind, are thinking, the idols of these other places, of these false gods, and they didn't recognize them as false gods, only as gods. These gods are more powerful. These idols are more powerful than the ones that the Jerusalem the Jerusalemites have, that the ones of the Samaritans have. This is the Assyrian mindset. It says, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images, just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? Verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem now is in Judah. So he's now including them. He plans on dealing with their idolatry. He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. The haughty eyes. God hates. Um, God hates with a passion, um, haughtiness, and pride. And we have a, uh, in Scripture, we have a description of somebody who had come to this place. And I want to read it real quick from Daniel chapter 4. And I'm only going to read verses 30 through 32. If you remember the story, you can go read it for yourself. It's in your bulletins. Daniel chapter 4. It's the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He had titled, been titled the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Over all the world, he was the king. And it says in verse 30 of Daniel chapter 4, it says, The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built, and as royal residence by the might of my power, and for the glory of my majesty? Verse 31. Scary stuff. When God determines to deal with somebody, sometimes it's not given any time. As he's speaking, it says, while the words were in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven saying, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass. To eat like cattle. And seven periods of time 
That's most likely seven years. I want you to think about that. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High, He is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. See, God is the God. He's the God of all. He's the God of, who is the judge of all. He's the one who sets up kingdoms and He sends them crashing down. He and He alone is the one who does this. So when these guys' heart had been lifted up in haughtiness, God does indeed deal with those things. Um, verses 13 through 14, He says, By the power of My hand and by My wisdom I did this, for I have understanding and removed the boundaries of the people and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of, of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. There was not one that flapped its wings or opened its beak. Um, God is going to deal with all their haughtiness and all their arrogance. What he says here in his wisdom, he sarcastically points out the, the painful obvious truth. He paints this ridiculous and ludicrous picture of tools wielding the, uh, the man rather than the truth of the reality. Listen to how he does this in verse 15. He asks these questions. They're rhetorical. He says, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? He's sarcastic. He's poking fun at them. Because the axe really going to boast over the one who's wielding it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it. Imagine that. This ridiculous picture that he's painting. A club that's lifting this man. Instead of the other way around. He says, or, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease. This is how he's going to deal with these Assyrians. And we're not just talking about just regular guys. These are warriors. These are stout men. These are men trained in war. These are warriors. Um, imagine, if you will, if you're familiar with MMA, a bunch of MMA guys, thousands upon thousands of those guys. Tough. They know how to fight. Their skills are amazing. If you watch them. Um, guys like that. He says, this is how I'm going to deal with them. Because of the arrogance of their heart, the pride within them. He says, therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. And under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. You know, the only thing that I can think of that, that will uh, um, waste a person away like that, that I know of, cancer. I've seen it. I've seen the devastation of cancer. That's what it sounds like he's going to do. He's just going to infect them all with cancer. And it's going to eat them. It's going to waste them away to where they're nothing but a bag of bones. These stout warriors, they're not going to be so stout anymore. God is the judge. There is a recompense to pay. What they have sown, they will reap. They've sown the wind. They will reap the world. Don't go beyond what God has called us to do. And the light of Israel will become a fire. And his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns, his briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. And the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small, listen, will be so small in number that a child could write them down. We're talking about places where they had massive forests. So they're going to be so few trees, you can have a little child go there with a pen and pad and count the amount of trees. That's how God's going to affect their land even. So God deals with it. He is the judge of all the earth, and there is a recompense to pay. There's a price that people need to pay, that they will pay. Those who are haters of God, who will not bow the knee, there is a price. There's a recompense. 
There's a price that will be paid by these people. God's judgments are all final. And once He's made that final call in that judgment, He will not relent because He's just. It's scary indeed to be in the hands of an angry God. And many people will find themselves, especially in light of the fact that He sent His Son, that He paid that price, that He was willing to go to the cross for us, that He was willing to pay that price for us, and that so many people will reject what God has offered. There is a point at which there is no return, no place for repentance. And in, the, and in eternity, the body and soul will be destroyed by the one who alone could redeem them both. Don't wait till that judgment has been cast upon you, has been called out. Turn to Him. In this case, their pride and arrogance have brought upon their own heads such destruction that even the surrounding forests and the horticulture and everything is, is affected by the judgment. Sounds a lot like what Paul talks about in Romans, doesn't it? The earth groans. It's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. So that it can be set free from the curse. So Nebuchadnezzar had risen up in pride that I read earlier. And God said for seven seasons, for seven years, you're going to have to deal with this. And until you come to your senses, you're going to be out there in the field. No bathing, no shaving. It seems like God caused his body to grow. It almost sounded like he'd become some kind of a weird animal, some Sasquatch creature, eating grass. A king. He wasn't just a king. He was a king of kings and a lord of lords. Here he is out there. And then it says um, in, um, In Daniel chapter 4, I want to read verse 34. It says, but at the end of that period, of those seven years, most likely. This is, this is Nebuchadnezzar now. He's writing from his perspective. And I want you to hear this. He says, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. Reason and the very next act is what went hand in hand and goes hand in hand. And I blessed the Most High. I didn't look upon everything and say, oh, look at all that I've done. I looked up and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures for generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are Accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will. In the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. He would know full well. When God decides to act. He does as he pleases. And no one can ward off his hand. Or say to him. What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me. And my majesty. And splendor were restored to me. For the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and the surpassing greatness was added to me. Here's the key. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. Hallelujah. For all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's what God is talking about in Isaiah. He deals with pride. He deals with arrogance. He deals with all those things. No one is free from the judge of all the earth. He will have the final say. Today we celebrate communion. And I love that fact. I always look forward to this, this time of the month. That amazing last supper where our Lord the night he was betrayed. He served his disciples. He washed their feet. Knowing what was coming. He humbled himself. 
Here's the King of kings, the true King of kings, and the true Lord of lords. The one through whom the earth and the heavens were made. By Him, through Him, and for Him. The ultimate picture of humility and grace, meekness, compassion on the night He was betrayed. So my friend, are you still in the same mind frame as King Nebuchadnezzar? Looking upon all that you have done? Or will you give glory to God and honor Him, praise Him, and worship Him? Do you still think that you built your life and all that you have done? Do you think that you're a good person? That is one of the most diabolical thoughts that we have as lost people. That we're good people. We're not. Jesus himself said, there's only one good. God alone. God alone is the only one who's good. Every one of us, not so good. Not so much. Goodness flees from us. It wants nothing to do with us because we're wicked and evil. Do you think that you're a good person? You're not. You need Jesus. Maybe you've never given yourself. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe even now, maybe the conviction of the Holy Spirit is upon you and you know that you're not good. Jesus said it himself. There's no one good but God alone. It brought me tumbling down. It crashed my world. Do you think that you can actually work off your sin or pay the debt that you owe? Do something that would be more worth than the price that Jesus paid on the cross? No. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will, from the flesh, reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. Do you have eternal life? Do you know eternal life? That's what communion is about. It's about the fact that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, that he served his disciples. He served the King of kings. And he said that he stripped down. Because later on, afterwards, he put back his clothes on. And he served on that night when the most important event in all of human history was about to unfold. Have you understood that? There is where our sins are forgiven on the cross. There, at the display of our hatred of God, is the cross of Christ. In our lostness, in our natural sense, in our natural man. But there is also that display of God's love, and God's justice, and God's mercy and compassion. You know that your sins are forgiven. You want to know that your sins are forgiven. Then turn, repent, turn from sin. God is causing you to understand the sinful sinner that you are. That's what you are. That is what you are, sinful sinner. That's what we all are. And I thank God that when He causes us to be born again, He makes us new. And though we still have that awful, stupid nature, He calls us saints. He calls us forgiven and redeemed. His redeemed. His forgiven. His saints. We're His. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you in your sin right now? Then admit it. Confess them to God. And then thank Him. Praise Him. And ask Him to forgive you. Make and make you new. He will. He does. He can. Join us then in communion. Communion is for the believer. For the one who acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. The Son of the living God. That He came and He paid that price. That he died, he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. That's what it's about. And then you can commune. You can receive Jesus Christ. Because that's what it says. But as many as received him to them, he gives the right to become a child of God. But you have to receive him. You've never done that, do it. Do it. Trust in him. Turn. 
And let Him change you. He does. He changes you. Sometimes, even though you don't want to let Him. He'll just do as He pleases. Because He can. This is what communion is about. And I want to read from, uh, from 1 Corinthians. It's about the night when He was betrayed. Paul talking to the Corinthians about these things. And he was reminding them of that great night, that wondrous night. You and I would have condemned everyone, not Jesus. Served, invited, partake, he says. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it reads as following. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. The breaking of the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Man, amazing. And in the same way, he took the cup also. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Hallelujah. The new covenant. The old covenant wasn't just taken away. It was fulfilled. Hallelujah. It was made whole in Christ Jesus. He says, now I have a new covenant. And it's in His blood. He says, do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. We're partaking with Christ of that supper. Of that last supper. We're acknowledging. His death. His body that was broken. His blood that was shed. The fact that he was buried. And that he rose again. We're acknowledging that. And we remember him this way. He says for as often as you eat this bread. And drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup, the Lord in an unworthy manner, which is why I said it is communion for believers. In an unworthy manner, he shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick. And a number sleep. It means they did. They're taking a dirt nap. If I could be so brash. That's the kind of sleep that he's talking about. They died. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. Hallelujah. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. That separation. The communion is for those who trust in Christ, who have come to know that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the one who paid that price. Jesus alone is the one who can do this. And that's what we celebrate. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your grace. I thank you for your mercy. Thank you for this night that took place so long ago. Thank you for the communion that we can have, that we can commune with you. And we can remember all that you have done, the price that you were willing to pay, the depths and the, the things that you were willing to endure, despising the shame, you did it. Hallelujah. I love those words that you cried out from the cross. The telestai is finished, paid in full. Thank you. Thank you for fulfilling what we could never fulfill, for paying a price in the debt that we could never pay, that our name, that our sin, would be nailed there to the cross, the debt paid, canceled out, no longer owed, because it is paid in full. Thank you that you are enough, that if we believe by your grace, through faith, that we can be saved. Thank you, Father, for all these things and more, that you have given salvation and made it sure in Christ Jesus. And it's not dependent on us. Hallelujah. I rejoice and exult in that fact. Pray that you would just have your way amongst us. That your word just permeate every 
every crevasse of darkness with your light. And that we would be that light to someone in the darkness. And that you would be glorified and magnified and exalted. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.